0: That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to episode 134 of A Life in Ruins Podcast. Reinvestigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I'm, joined by, I'm not joined by my co hosts Connor John and, and David Howe. But for this week's episode, I'm really pleased to be joined by Dr. Jane Lee Thomas. Jane Lee, how are you doing this evening?
2: I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm doing fantastic. Really excited to have you here. So Thank real you. quick for our audience, could you um, just introduce yourself a Brief background, you know, your current occupation, how long you've been working there.
2: Yeah, so I am the director of Indiana University's office of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. I just started my 10th year at Indiana, having come here actually from uh, Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, where I was finishing up my PhD.
1: Excellent. Excellent. I think you're the first guest we've had from Edinburgh. How do I pronounce Edinburgh? Edinburgh. 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 I would yeah. not get that R, but <laughs> yeah, okay. we've, had, we've had a number of like Oxford and like Cambridge folks, but like never someone from, from Scotland. So that's like really mm-hmm. exciting. What was yeah. that like being at Edinburgh?
2: It was amazing. Yeah, it was kind of a, a big jump for me. I'm very close with my family and that's a pretty long way to go. I had never been to Europe before, didn't know anything about the culture or especially Scottish traditions. And it was... Kind of like jumping the deep end, but it was wonderful.
1: Excellent. Well, we definitely have a lot to talk to you about tonight. But just just for the background, you know, what first got you into anthropology just, just to begin with?
2: Yeah. So during my undergraduate, when I went to Eastern Oregon University, I went there to play softball. I was a, played softball in college. So that was my main reason for going there. It took me forever to decide my major because I liked everything. Geology and anthropology, history, Spanish. I was learned, taking all of the classes. Um, and then I went to my first field school after I graduated from my undergraduate. And I knew at that point I was really interested in archaeology. So I went to Central Washington University, where I received my master's degree in resource management, focusing on um, NAGPRA and bioarchaeology. And then I left and went to Europe for seven years. And did five years of my studies at the University of Edinburgh, and then did a little bit at the University of Ljubljana in Slovenia. Some extra research after I graduated.
1: Excellent. So where was your field school at in undergrad?
2: It was close to, it was about a half hour north of Twin Lakes, Idaho. It was a paleo-Indian lava tube near Twin Lakes.
1: Hey, everyone. Carlton here. Dr. Thomas says Twin Lakes in Idaho, but actually she meant Twin Falls. There's a Twin Lakes in Indiana. That was the confusion. So field school was outside of Twin Falls, Idaho. Back to the episode.
2: Kind of a unique site. It had been excavated in 1989 by a gentleman named Gene Titmus, who was a, a stone tool specialist. And... They had found a lot of Pleistocene megafauna when they had done the excavations in the, in 1989. And then in 2004 is when it had been opened up again. And the initial start of the field school is kind of interesting because they just shoved the entire cave full of hay. And so we had to take 20 years of hay or, you know, out of the cave first and there was porcupine quills in it the porcupines had been nesting in there and one guy got stuck with one of them and kind of a wild way to spend the summer with you know rattlesnakes and very hot weather and but it was a lot of fun
1: yeah i can imagine so like what time of year were you were you guys like there in like june july cuz the yes. great basin oh <laughs> yes. good night
2: yeah it was eight weeks i think six weeks eight weeks in end of june July and the beginning of August, and there were no trees. It was just really large sagebrush, a lot of dust, and we had a a resident rattlesnake that we had to build a rock cairn for because he would go into the unit, so we didn't want to kill it. So we built it, and he would go in there and get out of the, the sun and hang out, And so we knew if he was in there, that was fine. But it was a lot of, as a field school goes, I mean, I haven't been too many, but it was very remote. It was a lot of like trucking in the 150 gallons of water kind of thing. Yeah, it was kind of like that. So, but it was fun. It was, you know, quite the experience. And of course we found, started really finding stuff on the last week. And so I don't believe anybody ever went back out. I don't think there's been another field school out there, Um, but it was, it was really neat for the, for the first experience out in the field.
1: Oh, I can imagine. That sounds amazing. So what what an undergrad pushed you to to think about graduate school and specifically going from like a general anthropology with like that archaeology field school, why bioarc and then why why NagPra at, at your master's program at um uh, at Central? At Central, yeah.
2: Yeah. So the program is is resource management. And so in my undergrad I wasn't really sure what kind of job I was going to get with just a bachelor's degree. And so I thought, okay, I, I will go get a master's. I live uh, about a half hour from Central, so it was kind of close to home. And resource management, as the degree was a, a two year degree. And there was either you could go the natural side or the cultural side. So you could study cultural side. I mean, people study rock art, archaeological sites, bio And the natural side is more ecosystems and habitats and things like that. And when I started there, I felt a little out of place because a lot of the classes were not, it was like economics, law and policy, never thinking I would really get too much into law. And... I really had a hard time picking a thesis project because I didn't like pottery and I tried stone tools. I was doing some paleo-indian stuff. I tried flint napping; that was a disaster. And <laughs> but I originally was interested in people and I started looking at secondary data. So I was not looking at any collections. I was looking at a secondary data that had been collected and doing a statistical analysis on that data to determine if that secondary data could be utilized. Um, Also working on NAGPRA and learning about the law, but I was also doing forensics at the same time. I was really interested in studying osteology. It was just the time period for me. I wasn't quite sure I was doing both, doing a forensics field school and a couple other things, but then I was accepted to the University of Edinburgh. I got a scholarship to go there, and that kind of sealed the deal for me. So,
1: and what was going to Edinburgh like? Like you know, essentially <laughs> going from that going from that American, especially like Pacific Northwest area, then traveling you know across the U.S., across the Atlantic to Scotland, in a, in a whole completely different academic paradigm.
2: Yeah. And and I learned actually when coming back to Indiana, just how different it is because the doctoral programs over there are not set up the way they are here. And when I got there, of course, there was a lot of learning to do about, you know, just words for, to start with because pronunciation, for example, we would say skeletal, they say skeletal. And so it was really hard for me to understand. First of all, we were talking about certain things like a torch torch is a flashlight. So just simple things for me, just trying to learn, first of all, that, okay, nobody knows what you're talking about when you say f- flashlight, because then nobody says that there. And, and so that was a, a bit, also the weather, because it's very rainy and very cold all the time. And about a month after I went there, I decided on my dissertation project, which was going to be in Slovenia. And that kind of came about because my advisor had said, at the University of Ljubljana there there's a project and I said where's Slovenia and they said well you're gonna study cremations and I said isn't that just ash how can I study that and they said we well, have a lot to learn <laughs> so after one month of being in Edinburgh flew out to Ljubljana Slovenia for my first visit and needed a translator because nobody was speaking English to me at the time which was get into that later, but that was a little bit interesting because I found out much later, several years later that some folks did speak English, but my research was not really considered at the time to be worth much because osteological studies were not being done in the country. And it's been really cool because that has completely turned around in the last decade or so.
1: So, how, how do you study skeletal remains through, through cremation?
2: Yeah, that's a, a really good question. So everyone thinks it's ash, which for the most part, it isn't. Obviously, there might be burnt bone dust, but for the most part, it's not ash and it never was. Today at a modern crematorium, what is used is called a cremulator. And this is basically like a large coffee grinder. So once the body is burned in the coffin, the body is then dropped down and they run a large magnet through it, and that will take out dental fillings, hip replacements, anything like that. Then after the body is cooled, the body goes through the cremulator, the coffee grinder, or whatever, and and then you get the ash. It's just pulverized bone. Well, archaeologically, you didn't have that. So you still get very large fragments of, of bone. You can still tell age, sex, pathologies, depending on what's there, you can tell the temperature the body was burned, the placement on the pyre. Um, Sometimes you can tell if there's animal included and that gets a little tricky because usually it's not the whole animal. So then whether or not you're dealing with ritual feasting, if you're dealing with just, you know, food refuse, if you're dealing with something else. And in Slovenia, my focus was on the late Bronze Age, which is roughly a thousand to uh, seven hundred and fifty uh, BC or and BP. And as soon, it's obviously not this easy. But as soon as the early Iron Age hit, you start getting horse in the cremations, and you don't see that in the late Bronze Age. And so there were animal in the cremations. So it's it's a lot different. And even within bioarchaeology. There's a very small population of us that are are really trained to properly analyze cremated remains.
1: So, what did you, what was the research question? Like, what was going on? Set the stage because <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, I'm yeah. like okay. really enthralled now.
2: <laughs> yeah. So to back up a little bit, so they said, you know there's this project at the University of Ljubljana but you're going to have to go there you're not going to be able to bring the collection back what they had had some issues in the past with researchers taking collections out of the country and not bringing them back and then losing the collections and so they said if you're going to do this you have to go to Slovenia but as i mentioned at the time they were kind of like we don't need you to tell us the age or the sex of the individual because we know what it is based on the grave goods if it's a pot it's a woman and if it's a weapon it's a man and it was like okay. Ooh, the
1: classic mistake. The classic uh-huh. mistake.
2: <laughs> yeah. So it was like okay, and and people were kind of just dis- very dismissive. I would say I was a foreigner. I didn't speak any English, or excuse me, I didn't speak any Slovenian. Not a lot of spoke spoke English to me. And so they were kind of like, you know, we'll make a space for you in the basement. A couple of my colleagues there were amazing from day one. They were super supportive and, you know, absolutely helped me out there and still are, are very close friends of mine. So I analyzed three sites in the Styrian region, which is the Eastern region of Slovenia. And those remains were pretty unusual because they had been kept in the past. So the that time period is called the Urnfield culture in Europe and it just like it sounds a lot of the farmers at 1800s when they were plowing their fields they would just hit funerary urn after funerary urn over and over and over. And during that time period mm-hmm. all across in Europe everybody was being cremated put into an urn. The urns were then buried in fields. Urnfield culture. So They, in the past, had really only been interested in the ceramics, talking the 50s and 60s. And so the bones were thrown away. They were just dumped out and never kept. And so the collection that existed from my dissertation was kind of unusual in the fact that it had been kept. Yeah. So I went down there and, you know, I had to, you know, clean the cremations. And obviously you, there's certain ways to do that. There's, you need to pass them through, um, 10 millimeter, five millimeter, and two millimeter safes for size, and then it needs to be weighed. And that'll tell you percentage of the body. So a human individual that has been burned is roughly, let's say 2000 grams. That's, that's it. And most of the body being you know, water and flesh, when that's gone, it's about 2000 grams. So I can tell kind of what percentage of the body was collected for burial based on the weight. Then after you have the cumulative weight, then you separate out by skeletal element, long bones, skull, everything, and then you weigh those. And that'll give you a rough percentage as well of what percentage of the body itself and different skeletal elements is being collected. And the really unique thing about the cremations from Slovenia is that they are very lightly burned. Most cremations need to be about 645 degrees Celsius to be considered cremated or calcined. Otherwise, it's just burnt. But there are exceptions to that rule. Um, And in Slovenia, absolutely. The body is burnt at very low temperatures for a long long period of time. And so the, the degree of burning is very thorough but very low. And when you think from, I have never done this. I had a professor suggest that I go to the, this is a little grotesque, but I had a professor suggest that I go to the hospital and ask for an amputated limb, build a funerary pyre in the university of Edinburgh car park or parking lot and burn it and see what happened to see if we could get the low burning. And I thought, well, we're absolutely not doing that. But the low burning is really unusual there. The other thing that was pretty exceptional is that less than 10% of the body was being collected for burial and no idea. They don't know. We don't have no idea. The soil is very acidic in a lot of Slovenia. And so whether or not the other parts of the body are being consumed, which is actually something in communities in the Amazon have done, whether or not the... Cremated remains are being put into like an amulet and worn, being placed into the river. All of those things are things that I learned about through ethnographic research and, and different communities around the world and what had been done. But very, very small amounts of the body are being put into those very large funerary urns and then buried. When you build a cremation pyre, you have to build it to allow enough oxygen flow and the first 45 minutes or so of burning is just the flesh, the hair, and the skin, and a lot of the water evaporation. After that, you still need to keep the pyre going. So you're going to have to have enough fuel. You're going to have to prepare for too much wind, rain. Somebody's going to have to stay there and keep it going, keeping the whole pyre burning. And then once it has finished burning, Sometimes in the past things such as milk, perfume, sand, water, those were placed on the pyre to extinguish it. And then people would go through and pick out the pieces that would be put in to the urn. And that did include animals as well. The really strange one we found was it was a stone marten, which is kind of like a rock weasel. And why that's in there, I don't know. The only part was the mandible Part of the mandible. So one explanation could have been if it had been fur or something and and the, the mask where the skull was still. Oh, but gotcha. other than that, yeah, we had no idea why. There was there was cow, there was sheep, there was red deer, there was pig, kind of all of that stuff we kind of anticipated, very low numbers percentage wise, but it was still there. No horse. So once I got through all of the the calculations in terms of weight and coloration it was then to do the actual osteological analysis best I could based on age and sex. If there was any sort of diseases present, um, all of that will still preserve, um, even though it is, uh, well, depends. If if the temperature is right, it'll it'll stay there. If it starts getting to 500, 600 Celsius, it becomes black and then it becomes white and calcined. One thing we actually were able to do, though, I worked with Oxford And at the time they had kind of invented a new radiocarbon dating technique based on dating the hydroxyapatite and not the collagen, because when you have a cremation, there's no collagen left. It's just the the hydroxyapatite and you need that 645 degrees Celsius to basically lock in that date. I don't know how it works, but we applied to Oxford to partner with them for a grant to see if we could send small samples of calcined bone to Oxford to see if the radiocarbon dating would come back and match what the Slovenians had already determined over the span of 20-30 years based on other studies, and it did. Um, so that was pretty pretty cool. All of the work that I do there in Slovenia is, is supported by the department, and this is something we might get into a little bit later, but The attitude towards skeletal remains and archaeology over there is quite different than it is here. And how remains are treated, how they're used or not used for study, it's it's quite different. And so I feel like I've kind of gotten to see both sides, the United States way of doing things and the European way of doing things. And I think that has definitely helped me in my career navigate certain things.
1: Yeah, I have a very vivid memory of when I walked into the director of this museum in Ukraine, and he just had like shelves of human skulls that he's excavated and it, it wigged me out. He's like, why? It's just, you know, it's work. And I'm like, dude, this is not how we do things in the States. This is so weird. Yeah, but-
2: yeah. And there was, there would have been an experience for sure with Edinburgh that I don't know it'll ever leave me. And I think some of that is you know, we had a there was a teaching lab and a teaching collection, and the teaching collection was from a known medieval Scottish cemetery, and the collection was really in bad shape. And this is a little bit graphic, but you know, the vertebra had strung on a string, and you know, it was kind of just really fallen apart. And when people, you know, students would drop a piece of bone on the floor, the bone dust would be just put into the garbage, and I and I I was it really bothered me, and I said you know, what's going to happen to this collection? Is it going to be reburied? I mean, you you know where it came from, you know, which cemetery, you know, there could be tombstones. And I think the comment was, I don't remember who said it to me, but it was like, oh no, we'll just throw it out. And I was like, throw it out. You can't throw it out. It's, it's, what are you talking about? So, I mean, that there was so much of that, you know, for example, in the National Museum of, uh, Scotland and Edinburgh, there are, you know, human remains on display. There used to be a Viking burial under glass that you could like almost walk over. And I mean, and that was such a drastic change from the very strict training I received for my master's with learning about NAGPRA. And it. I had a hard time in the beginning trying to figure out in my mind how to reconcile with the differences um, because yes, I suppose that medieval population is their ancestors in Scotland, but I still saw the the humanity side of it, and the fact that these people had a proper burial and they were dug up, and they, I mean, if it, they needed to go back, they needed to go back into the ground, and it really, really bothered me for a long time. And so <laughs> it was just, it was hard to get used to at first.
1: Absolutely. Well, on that note, we'll be right back with episode one thirty four with Dr. Jane Lee Thomas, and uh, next time we're going to get into Nacra. So stay tuned. <laughs>
0: Hey, archaeology podcast fans, anyone that's heard me on a show has likely heard me mention coffee one or probably a thousand times. Coffee, however awesome it is, has some downsides and should be consumed in moderation. That's why we partnered with Laird Superfoods. They've got lots of stuff, but their coffee and coffee creamers have been engineered to taste better, provide functional benefits, and don't contain any refined sugars. So, are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing, plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code ARCPodNetFeed at checkout and save 15% on your purchase today. You can also click the link in your show notes.
1: And we're back with Life and Ruins podcast, episode 134, here with Dr. Jane Lee Thomas. So, Jane Lee, what exactly... Do you do as the uh, director for the Office of the Native American Graves Protection Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, here at Indiana University Bloomington?
2: Yeah, I, I do a lot of a lot of things actually, but the main part of my job is the compliance aspect of, of, of the NAGPRA law, and a very large component of that is consulting with the federally recognized tribal nations that have claim to the collections that IU has in here at IU Bloomington. And when I came to Indiana, there had not been a repatriation when I was hired in 2013. And very quickly, I learned that we were not in good shape. Obviously, having come from Scotland and now I had never been to the Midwest before. I had a lot of learning to do. I started making the same mistakes. I feel like a lot of people either did or do. I sent out a letter and I sat around and waited and nothing happened. And I thought this is this is not how this should be done. This is not gonna get me anywhere. And I I like to meet people. I don't feel relationships can be built through an email. And so I got a car and with a colleague of mine and, and went door to door in Oklahoma. And then I came back and I got and went by myself out to Arizona and I got a car and I went door to door to 14 tribes in five days. And There was a lot of outreach and that was so incredibly important to me to start building that relationship with the different communities and obviously didn't happen overnight there was a lot of trust that needed to be built and with consultation being such a key component of compliance work the repatriation is still exceptionally important but there's a ton of work that goes before that and and first of all you need to have a relationship between a university and a tribal nation, work through the plans for reburial, and and it, there's a lot to it. We now have, what the tribes tell us, much better relationships with the tribes. We completed a very large repatriation last spring, um, 2021 at Angel Mounds, and that was a very intense four years of work, obviously with the pandemic thrown in there, and, um, yeah, so that's the primary role that I have. Also in charge of um, grant writing, a lot of the the legal components of writing the, the paperwork that has to go to the federal register, and then working with the communities to defer to their wishes as to how the repatriation and then reburial might happen.
1: Okay, and so what is that? What does this whole process entail for for being Nagpra compliant and actually repatriation? Because you are the first. Nagpra expert we've ever had on the show and we've talked about nagpro in in plenty of different contexts and from many different lenses but actually like someone who's well-versed and and has not only um but you're also connected outside of like iu and in other different organizations as it relates to repatriation work so like what is this process like for the for those that aren't familiar with with it
2: Sure. (laughs) I'll kind of give you guys, or I'll give you the cliff notes version. So, for those listening who may not be as familiar with NAGPRA, uh, in 1990, NAGPRA was passed, and that required all institutions that received federal funding, and that didn't matter how much money, if it was 25 cents of federal funding, you still had to comply at that point, they needed to create a with their summary information by 1993. That was the deadline to have all that back to the National NAGPRA program. The summary listing includes unassociated funerary objects, objects of cultural patrimony, and sacred objects. The list of Native American ancestor remains and associated funerary objects was due by 1995. After that point, the university's, Well, actually, during that process, they were supposed to start consulting. And a lot of times the universities didn't. And even once their inventory and summary information was submitted, not a lot happened. And in the mid-90s, there were several reasons for that. There were resource issues, both on museums and tribes. The tribes, unfortunately, were inundated with letters coming in from institutions. Email wasn't really a thing back then. Um... And and so, no one really had a lot of the resources needed at that time. Not everyone, but a lot of folks um, were really struggling for resources. I would say, unfortunately, a lot of institutions, also, especially in the removal states where the tribes were removed during the 1800s, seventeen eighteen hundreds 1800s, and are no longer, for example, in Indiana, there are over 50 tribes that claim Indiana as homeland, but those tribes were removed. A lot of those tribes today are in Oklahoma. A lot of institutions claimed, well, there's no tribes. We don't know who to talk to. I guess we'll just keep the collections. I mean, and that's being a little sarcastic, but not far off from there. There was at the time a component of cultural affiliation needed to be determined in order to repatriate. The universities would say, oh, we can't find affiliation. I guess we'll keep the collections and then we'll continue to do research. That was a really, really big issue, obviously. And in 2010, the regulations changed slightly to include culturally unidentifiable. And that's 10.11 in the law. And what that says is it doesn't matter if you don't know who to talk to. All collections of Native American ancestor remains must be repatriated. And there's a process built into the law in which tribes that have aboriginal claim to an area are able to take disposition the problem with that is it privileges tribes that were willing to sign united states government treaties because that's one of their way parts of evidence it also doesn't make sense because for example using indiana again There were tribes that passed through Indiana from the East Coast during the removal period. So perhaps they were Indiana only a 50-year period of time before, again, being pushed further out west towards Oklahoma. And if they are the only signatory of that treaty, then they can claim, take disposition over a collection that's 4,000 years old. But that doesn't make any sense. And the tribes, will, they've communicated with me and said, we weren't here. We were on the East Coast. So it's it's obviously an imperfect law. And one of the other issues is that when that regulation came in in 2010, un, uh, the associated funerary objects, the university may give them back. It was not a must. And so universities have used that as a tactic to keep the funerary items, the fancy pots, the pipes the effigies, that was an excuse. And those of you who follow NAGPRA news, that that's, pops up from time to time. For us at Indiana, when I came here, it was very much, this is not negotiable. The funerary objects are being returned. To me, that was like repatriating someone's grandmother, but not grandmother's wedding ring. That seemed wrong to do that. And so I was very adamant that we were going to be to do that. Right now in the Nagpur world, there are some new proposed regulations which have their uh, good and bad components, I would say. And we can talk a little bit about that later. But my job at Indiana is to consult with the communities that have an affiliation or an Aboriginal interest in the collections that we have and work with them, consult to find that affiliation and the work forward to repatriate and then rebury.
1: Okay. That's a daunting, daunting task. And I can imagine like at so many different levels, you're faced with bureaucratic BS. I can imagine university, state organizations, federal organizations, but also tribe, tribal politics, like <laughs> that's that's a pretty intensive position you have so how are you supported here at indiana university like do you have a staff what's the culture like it, you know by colleagues yeah. outside of your office and at, you know Absolutely. anthro here like
2: uh-huh. what's it like yeah um you know it's it's changed slowly since i got here i was hired to Work in the lab side of things as the osteology director, and then I was made the director after a few months of the the program, and that took me out of the lab and into the more administrative role. And through time, through consultation, and gradually received more trust and more relationship building and more work. And at the same time, in IU side, we've really had a lot of support. And now I. Not going to say this officially, but I think we're the largest NAGPRA team in the country. We have six full-time people that are dedicated only to NAGPRA compliance work and doing the work in the way that the tribes that I work with wish the work to be done. That's not necessarily the way people might want it done in California or Maine or New York, but the tribes that I work with have requested that there are certain ways that we move forward to appropriately repatriate. I think, to be honest with you, and I just started my tenth year here. There's been such a, a ripple effect in such a positive way. I mentioned, you know, like you know, we didn't start with a good reputation at all, and to then turn that around, and then to really have the relationships that we have today, and not only in the compliance side, but we're working very closely with tribes on. Uh, research projects, publications, grant opportunities, opportunities for our students, for uh, tribal representatives. And, you know, I have such an incredible support system um, from the upper administration. My staff are amazing. I have colleagues at IU and um, other places that are exceptionally supportive of the work we do. And of course, the tribes. So patient and so gracious from day one. I mean, I moved here with a strange Scottish accent that nobody could understand what I was saying, you know, and I had never been to the Midwest before, so I had so much learning to do. They were so patient with me and, you know, we've been able to have quite a few very successful repatriations. Obviously, we have a lot of work to do still, but we're getting there one day at a time.
1: Excellent. And so NACPR was passed in 1990, so it's been a little over... 30 years. Why is it still crucial today? Shouldn't it, shouldn't it be done like 30 years is that enough time <laughs> to get everything back? So what's what's going on?
2: Yeah, I you know there are a lot of t- institutions today that are still dragging their feet 30 years on, but there are a lot of institutions as well that are really doing great compliance work and I think the universities that are successful, if they had started in nineteen ninety with the resources that they have now, with the attitudes that they have now, if they had started, they would be done by now. But the reality is is they aren't. Unfortunately, I, I saw an article today that a university is just getting going thirty-two years later. And I think unfortunately that is going to continue to happen, especially for those institutions that tried to fly under the radar for a very long time that they said, well, we didn't receive any federal funding. We don't have to comply. Well, if anyone took CARES Act money because of COVID, they now have to comply. That's federal funding. And so what's going to happen, I think, in addition to trying to get a lot of the universities to move, a lot of smaller universities that have even less resources are going to be panicking about how to move forward in a positive way. Unfortunately, not as many universities are as supportive as IU is about compliance work. In a lot of situations, you have a very large university and that university has very large collections, but they will only provide funding for one person to do the job and then they're half-time tenure track. And so that person is forced to do compliance work half the time and also work on their tenure dossier and teach classes, and it just doesn't work. It just absolutely doesn't work. So, when you have an institution that understands that NAGPRA is not only a legal requirement, but an ethical obligation, it is human rights law that really amazing progress can be made, not only to get the ancestors home, but the opportunities that come up working together with the tribes and different projects and different things that I've seen kind of um, those relationships started as a NAGPRA discussion. And then now other units are starting to create their own relationships and work on different projects. And that's been really cool.
1: Yeah, I absolutely bet. But like, aren't you technically working yourself out of a job once the last Ancestor or, or funerary object grave good is, is out of IU. What happens what happens to you?
2: <laughs> well, I, I would imagine that there will be somebody else still out of compliance, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, you know, Nagpra jobs are they pop up all the time. And whether you're an archaeologist that wants to do work in the field, whether you want to work for a CRM firm, a historical society, a museum, an art museum, Nagpra is everywhere. And people that are trained in NAGPRA work are very highly sought after. And so, I mean, you never know where I'll end up down the road. But uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully, I mean, the idea is that all of the ancestral remains and the cultural items someday will all be home. I'm positive and optimistic that a lot of universities are working in a very positive direction, but there are definitely others that are not. And so hopefully someday they will also move the correct way.
1: Excellent. So to close out this segment, Jane Lee, what's the most rewarding and fulfilling part of your job? You deal with so much bureaucracy, all these different laws and trying to correct the atrocities of the past in a field that has like deeply colonial roots. What makes you wake up every day and wanting to do this and go to work?
2: Yeah, I think the, the, there are two things for sure. Number one is, and this again is, is a little bit going back to that experience I had in Edinburgh and that I'm helping in a very small way to, um, again, going back to also the human rights. Like I don't feel that human remains should just be sitting on a shelf for a researcher to do whatever they want to do with. That is a human being. They need to be reburied respectfully, treated with respect. And for me, it's such an honor to be part of the process to see those ancestors go home. Sometimes I'm invited to be part of the reburial ceremonies. Sometimes I'm not. And either way, it's the tribe's wishes. It's very rewarding to see that, that form of justice done and that those, those ancestral remains are going back to where they belong. I would say the other exceptionally rewarding part of my job is the people that I get to work with at IU, but also in the tribal communities. The work that I've done has, I have made such amazing friends across the country and that so much of this is not a job for me anymore. It's not nine to five. It really isn't. And I'm so invested in this because it's The moral and ethical and right thing to do and working with so many people that started off very upset with me because i represented iu and that there had been at the time a lack of repatriation work and to build that relationship into some very very strong friendships that i have today that's been just absolutely incredible
1: well, all right. And on that note, we're going to go ahead and end this segment. We'll be right back. Dr. Jane Lee Thomas here for episode 134 of the Life from Podcast. Stay tuned. And welcome back. We're still here with Dr. Jane Lee Thomas. You mentioned this in the last segment about NAGPRA, uh, upcoming NAGPRA regulations. And it's been uh, a buzz now in the archaeological community for a little bit within um, the Society for American Archaeology, NAPPO, and like a couple other places where some of these changes that are being made are going to have some uh, some rippling effects and maybe drastic ones and I think it's important for one listeners know that NAGPRA is, is consistently updated and, and revised over the years It hasn't just been you know what was originally written in 1990 it's been updated so you're very much well versed in this and you sit on the committee of Native American relations with me and you've been the one to like educate most of the committee members on this and like keep me and Wade like saying of like what what are we supposed to say and it's all really coming from you telling us what we need to tell the SAA so for our our listeners what's going on with these regulations like what are they about why are they being proposed and what's the general reaction like let's just get into it
2: sure yeah I mean I think so as I mentioned earlier, NAGPRA is an imperfect law, and, you know, there definitely needs to be some some changes. You know, some of this is is my personal opinion. This is not necessarily, you know, I think to some extent uh, there hasn't been some transparency by some folks. So let me explain that. So we in the NAGPRA community... We had heard that there were going to be some edits and some proposed uh, changes, and we knew, we kept hearing they were coming. They kept hearing they're going to hit the institutions really hard. And some institutions need to be hit pretty hard. You know, I wouldn't say that's necessarily a bad thing. You know, I had heard in 2019 that they're coming out soon. And then, of course, the world turned upside down in 2020. One of the issues was that these new regulations, the proposed changes, as far as I know, I don't I don't know who wrote those. I don't know where that came from. I don't know the level of consultation that was done with tribes prior. I don't know who came up with the idea of this. You know, that's not something that and I might have missed it, but I don't know where the some of this came from. Not to say that there are changes that I mean, they need to be made. For example, we talked about how the law says it's that objects may be given back it's not a must well now it's a must and I think that's fantastic I think that's that's absolutely great there's a couple other um, clarifications that have been added to the law which if that's you know beneficial for folks then that's also that's also great the issue is that the new regulations came out and it wasn't clear that a lot of the I mean I didn't we weren't hearing that there had been a lot of consultation. It's just that a version had been sent out. They were sent out last year in 2020 for the tribes to comment on in the middle of what was still the pandemic and some tribal offices were still shut down. And there was 90 days for there to be turnaround. The federal, the department received over 700 comments and consulted with 71 tribes. That, to me, and to a lot of folks that I've talked with, is not enough. 71 tribes is not even one-eighth of the tribal nations in this country, and that doesn't include the Native Hawaiian organizations. That's just not good enough. But I understand that they might be also constrained by some sort of federal policy or rules. So anyway, not to make the excuse for them by any means, but, you know, so... After they received the 700 comments and the con- consultation with the tribes over this last year, they've been working on another set of edits and now it's the institution's turn and the organization's turn to comment on these. My major issue, and I know that this concern is shared between other universities and tribes. It's one of the major issues is they're going to put a two year deadline to resubmit your inventory information, consult with all of the tribes that have all affiliations with your collections, and in two years, make a determination and turn around and submit your legal paperwork to repatriate. That's not going to happen. And they have included a way to ask for extensions if this can't be done. I'll explain a little bit of why this is is very, again, we don't know where this two years is coming from. I know that they're trying to push on the universities to hurry up and get their act together. And it does need to happen. But what they're doing is creating exactly what happened in 1990. The tribes are going to be inundated with universities panicking, trying to consult in two years and make a determination. And what's going to happen is if tribes do not have the resources, if they are inundated with requests from 50 other universities and they don't respond, they're going to lose out on that collection because the universities will keep going. And for years and years and years, National NAGPRA has said you know, meaningful consultation at the review committee meetings, they've said, you know, it must be, it needs to be as face to face as often as possible, you know, to really create meaningful work, meaningful consultation and meaningful relationships. Not going to happen with a two-year deadline. It's just not. So we're not really sure. We don't really know what to do about this, you know, because if that's what comes into the final rule, then we have to abide by it. so, yeah, so that's one of the major issues that I see is that the one of the other things that's exceptionally problematic with the requirements is the re-inventorying of the ancestral remains and funerary objects. And unfortunately, a couple weeks ago on there's a Nagpra community of practice, and what that is is a group of all of us across the country that can listen in on certain topics. A representative from the National NAGPRA program said, you don't even have to look in the boxes. If you don't look in the box, you're not going to be able to communicate with the tribe what is being repatriated. There are some tribes that will request that the university don't touch the box, don't open it. Do we don't want you to touch it because, unfortunately, it was an excuse the universities were using them in the past of, well, we don't know. We have to analyze this all over again. And that was, that was absolutely an excuse that was being used. But there are communities that want to know the number of ancestors being returned. They want to know the age and sex of the ancestors for certain ceremonial aspects of the reburial. You need to open the box we have found that the 1995 inventory a lot of the times is wrong when if you're only relying on what's on a 1950s catalog card or written on the box and it says two individuals and you open the box and there's eight right arms it's nowhere near it's completely wrong but by now the national neper program promoting and saying you don't open the box you don't need to it's not necessary you can just give it back what if you're getting ready to repatriate and you open the box and there's a forensic case it's not an acre case but you've never checked uh, also if yeah also if you don't what's going to happen is that by not also checking what's in the box you're going to force, and by not making sure you have everything when you repatriate, you're going to force the tribes to repatriate. And again, and again, and oh, we found more, oh, we found more. And we're going to have to do this over and over and over and over. Because if you don't look through the boxes, for example, we find a lot of human bone in the fauna, faunal bone, in the animal bone. We had a situation where we found over 2000 human bone fragments in with the animal bone. If you do not open the boxes, you are not going to be repatriating all of the ancestors and the funerary objects. Additionally, with the two-year timeline, what's going to happen is that right now, there are a lot of situations where, unfortunately, collections are split between universities, whether that be the ancestors are at one location and the funerary objects are two states away at another university, or whether there was five excavations done by different schools at one site, and so everybody has part of the collection, What you're going to do is that if you have a a two-year deadline, the universities right now are trying to work together so the tribes don't have to consult more than once on one site or rebury the same site five, six, seven times because there's five, six, seven universities with that collection. A lot of us are working together to try to make this efficient and streamlined and so that the tribes are not having to rebury the same collection over and over again. You're going to go back to square one where – now the tribes are going to have to. They're going to have to hurry pick because we're not going to have the university side are not going to have enough time to get together and do it. And it's just not going to happen in two years. Um, we're going to have to figure it out because if that becomes the federal law, I think it's going to promote really irresponsible and lazy consultation efforts. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the burden of this is going to land on the tribes.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. I'm just thinking of my own nag for officer there's just 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 the one and that's already as it currently is you know marty does a lot and i can't imagine if this is passed how yeah how much busy she will her-
2: have two years to consult with every university in the entire country on anything pawnee
1: yeah
2: How, how is she going to, and, and to do, try to do face-to-face consultation to do that meaningful work that they have promoted for so many years. And now they're coming back and saying a two-year. One thing I think would be a lot better is that, okay, for some of these institutions, for example, that have been obstructionary and not doing the work they're supposed to do is have everyone have to reinitiate consultation in two years. It's going to create a lot of work. But if you show that you have reinitiated consultation, not that you have to have a determination, allow the tribe to dictate the deadline on how long this stuff's going to take. Have the institutions show that they have reinitiated consultation on all of their collections. It's going to be a lot of work, but that's fine. So that then the tribes dictate the way they want things to go and how long or how fast it's going to take. I don't know. If something like that is going to be proposed, I will be providing public comment in January on this situation um, to try to just really hopefully bring these issues to the forefront that people understand exactly what is going to cause a lot of, it's not going to make things any faster. I know that's what they think it's going to do. In reality, it's not.
1: Yeah. That sounds like the picture you're painting right now. Yeah. Does not sound really great or actually to, to fix a lot of these. Well, it fixes some problems, but creates a whole new, whole big one that kind of undermines the whole purpose of NACPRA to begin with and kind of takes a couple steps back with the relationships that have been built these past couple years between organizations right. and tribes.
2: I don't know why the federal government or the Department of the Interior is basically trying to dictate what the tribe's deadlines are with that two years. Because I think a lot of folks have forgotten that yes, it's going to put pressure on the university, absolutely. And as it should, but who's on the other side of the consultation table? It's not just the timeline on the university. And for those tribes that have one person in their office, if they don't consult fast enough, are they going to lose out on a collection? because the university's like oh never heard from them guess they're not interested it's the same thing that happened in the 90s i just i think it's really going to promote a lot of irresponsible behavior on behalf of universities that are panicking and just trying to get collections out the door they're not going to create those relationships so i don't know i'm going to propose that maybe they the whole two year thing that there's a two year deadline to show you know evidence of re Reaching out to communities, but then allowing the tribes to set the timeline. I don't know if that will fall on deaf ears or not, but I'm gonna try.
1: Absolutely. Well, all right. Thank you so much for coming on on the show today, Jane Lee. It's absolutely yeah. phenomenal having you to talk <laughs> about about something you're an absolute authority of. So what are a couple sources? These could be books, articles, or videos that you would recommend for anyone interested in Nakpro or osteology. Yeah, what, where can our listeners learn more?
2: Yeah, so I would say that there's a couple of really good books out there. This one's going back a bit. Kat, Kathy Findair out in Colorado wrote Grave Injustice. That's a, a good book. There's a YouTube video. I don't know if it's out there yet. It's The Repatriation of the Omaha Sacred Pole. Do you know that one? Okay. And it's actually a video documentary of Harvard returning a sacred pole, I believe, in the 90s. And that's that's really interesting to watch. Um, I would say that if anybody also has questions, to just ask your local NAGPRA person if you have one. I mean, I'm absolutely always willing to talk with folks about NAGPRA, how it works, how it doesn't work, the balance between BioArk and NAGPRA, and you know, you can still do collaborative bioarch research with tribes if that's what they want to do. There's ways to do that, and we didn't get too much into that today, but, you know, a lot of people had the view that when NAGPRA was passed, it was, you know, it was the end of science and it was the end of archaeology and it was, it's just nonsense. It's absolutely not.
1: Right. Did you ever read Plundered Skulls and and Stolen Spirits?
2: I have heard of it. I have not read it.
1: Okay. One of my absolute favorite books. Yeah? Uh, Yeah. No, there's a good section on how the conversations that surrounded the event that, caused a lot of impetus for the push towards NAGPRA with the, mm. the DMNS consultations and the Sand Creek Massacre victims. So yeah. really good. Book.
2: You know, and if I have a, a moment or two, I can mention this. Um, one of the things that, you know, we actually at IU, we have just received a grant to next summer host a, a week long training. And it's kind of the first of its kind. I had been complaining for years that there was no you know, summer field school for NAGPRA where people could learn. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people that teach NAGPRA have never done NAGPRA. And that's kind of just a personal soapbox frustration is that, you know, You can't teach the law because there's so much more than just what's on the law. It's you have to learn how to do it, how to consult and how to appropriately work with communities. And we received funding to fully pay for eight individuals to fly to Bloomington for the week and have that training. And that training will be done by tribal scholars, tribal practitioners, elders, a few people that are NAGRA practitioners. And then we're also going to open it for folks because we've already had a lot of interest and we can only, unfortunately, fully fund eight individuals. Tribal members will be given priority, but we've also decided to open it up for anyone that wants to come and and have it and treat it like a field school and come for the week. We're going to do that as well.
1: Well, all right. That's awesome. Is there going to be like a link or something that we can put in the the episode description okay sweet
2: we have a website and um you can go through i use nagpur website for that this is a partnership with the university of illinois urbana-champaign And um, we thought this is just a pilot program to see if it could work. And there is a very brief application form. This is not going to be based on number of degrees or if you're a student or not. This is completely open for anyone and everyone who wants to come through the application process. It could be for tribal elders, TIPOs, museum professionals, undergraduate students. It, It doesn't matter. You don't have to have certain, so, you know, we're not asking to see your CV. There's, you know, there's, you'll see on the application page, there's a couple of things, but yeah, we're really hoping that this is a first year kind of pilot program to see if we can do this. And, uh, you know, hopefully in the, in the future, we can figure out how to make this something that can be offered either through tuition or credit for some students, but also be able to have the funding to continue to provide resources for folks to come and not charge anything.
1: Excellent. And so all of these links, are oh, well you can find down below in your episode description, wherever you're listening to this podcast. And last but not least, where can our listeners find you either on social media or on the web? How can our folks get oh. in contact with you?
2: Yeah, so um, the primary way to get in touch with me is actually through IU's NAGPRA website. I'm kind of old and old-fashioned. I don't really do a whole lot of social media. But um, yeah, I mean, my email is T-H-O-M-A-J-A-Y at indiana.edu. I'm happy to answer any questions about anything. I also write fiction novels. So if you Google my name, that might come up. So don't get confused. Uh, that is also still me, but it's just some, a hobby I do on the side, so...
1: All right. Well, good stuff. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, well, thank you Jane Lee. Of course. Well, we have to ask this, as we do with all of our guests, if given the chance again, would you still choose to live a life in ruins? Absolutely. Excellent. Well, everyone, we just interviewed Dr. Jane Lee Thomas. You can find Jane Lee on IU's NAC website and you can find her email down below in this episode description. And as always, please, please, please be sure to rate the podcast, provide us with any feedback on whichever podcasting platform you're using to listen to our show. You can find our email and website in the episode description. And if you're still listening to the show with the all shows feed, please subscribe to the Life Ruins individual show doing so helps us grow our our brand and our platform um, because we don't see any of those numbers or metrics from the all shows feed. So you really need to download our show so we can go to advertisers and sponsors and show them how well we're doing so we can uh, help create our content. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast.
0: You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer.